This is Metal Mike, and in this episode of the 80s Glam Metal Cast, we talk with Firehouse guitarist Bill Leverty. We revisit the Firehouse debut album and tour 30 years later, other key moments of their career, and we talk about his new solo album, Divided We Fall. Check it out. Well, Bill, welcome to the 80s Glam Metal Cast. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Great to be here. Awesome, man. I really appreciate you coming on. So, hey, man, you put out a solo album a few months back called Divided We Fall. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about it? Man, thanks, man. That's my fifth solo album. Uh, you know, Firehouse does about 55 shows a year. And uh, in my spare time, I come down to my studio and fiddle around. And when I get an idea for a song, I finish it. And it kind of keeps me off the street. So, <laughs> this latest one that I've I've done here is uh, a collection of songs that I've been kind of working off and on on for about six years. And I've been releasing one song at a time as a single. And then once I had 10, I pressed a bunch up of CDs. It, the CDs are available at my website, liberty.com. If you want one, you order it, and you, there's a little box you can check. And, and that says, uh, sign my CD. And then there's a little box that drops down where you fill in your name, and I'll sign the CD to you, and I ship it off to you. And um, I sure appreciate the support. Awesome, man. You know, I was definitely checking it out, and uh, I think it sounds great. you got catchy tunes, uh, some awesome guitar playing, of course. And, hey, you're a pretty damn good singer, man. I don't know if people know. Uh, some people might not know that, but you're, you're a really good singer. Oh, I appreciate it, man. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's great to be in a band with C.J. Snare because I get to work with him every night, and um, I've learned so much about how to sing by being in a band with him. But on top of that, I got Michael Foster and Alan McKenzie, who are also incredible singers in the band. So being surrounded by guys like that, it's kind of like being on a hockey team with, with really great players. It lifts your game. So I, th- I think that being in a band with, with guys of that caliber who are not only great musicians but great singers helps to uh, make me realize, you know, I need to practice my singing. So this is kind of my <laughs> exercise in doing that. You know, I, I dig the variety that's on it, too, because, uh, you know, some stuff sounds like it would be at home on a Firehouse album, and then some stuff's a little bluesy, and I think you even end off, it's got a little bit of a country vibe, right? Yeah, the last song is, is a country song, and I, I debated on whether to put that on there or not, but at the end of it, I was I was like, you know, I, I really just wanted this to be kind of a snapshot in time of the, the last 10 songs that I've worked on. When I write songs, I just try to write whatever comes to mind and uh if it's a funk tune like there's a funk one on there also and there's, there's some southern vibe stuff and, and some hard rock stuff and and whatever it is i try to just let the song tell me how it wants to sound and i try to do my best to to make that happen and um yeah that last song on the record is, is a country song and there, it really wasn't any way for me to dress it up as as anything other than that i, mm-hmm. I didn't go with a traditional kind of country vibe it's more hard rock country mm-hmm. but it's still you know no getting around that it, it is country tune so when you think back man 30 years ago the firehouse debut came out does this seem like it's been that long to you man it really doesn't i i <laughs> i guess that kind of goes with as you get, get up in age you look back at, and it seems like just the other day I, I was i was a kid you know just picking up a guitar Mm-hmm. So, uh, but but 30 years ago, it seems like that was when when that record came out. We had worked already for 
10 years, I don't know, you know, for, between when I quit college to, to try to get a record deal, it had been, it had been about 10 years mm-hmm. uh, before that record came out, and I was trying to get a record deal and trying to get a record released, trying to make it, as they say. So, so that took 10 years, and that's 30 more years to where we are now, and I, I'm just looking back on where did all the time go? Well, it, it all went to uh, a lot of great times and, and a lot of a lot of hard work too. I mean, we we really worked hard to to get to to have this longevity and maintain the longevity. And really, we owe we owe it all to our fans because mm-hmm. without the fans, we wouldn't be able to keep going. Uh, we would, but fortunately, with fans still buying tickets, we can go out and play more gigs. So that's why we can do almost sixty shows a year. Now, was the plan for you guys this year to do like some 30th anniversary shows of this album and then the COVID thing happened? What was your original plan for this year? Yeah, we had already started doing a 30-year anniversary set list of doing the whole first album okay, in its entirety from front to back, you know, in the, in the order, running order of the album. And then, you know, do the other songs that were kind of fan favorites or, or songs that charted for us. It was a lot of fun. It was just really cool going back and doing all the songs from front to back on that first record. Um, I know that Twitter lights up every time, you know, I, if anybody sends out anything that I see about this album, because it is, it's a, it's a killer album. Uh, you know, every tune is solid. So obviously you, you could play all these songs live with no problem. Sometimes I get surprised that they didn't even do more singles because there's so many other songs on the album that sound like they could be singles. Well, that's one of my, I guess, regrets in looking back in, in that we didn't beg the record company a little bit more to put out some of the other rock tunes on the album first before they they had a go for the throat business approach mm-hmm. which i understand i mean as knowing that it's really hard to break a band um but they went with don't treat me bad which had some rock and some pop mm-hmm. crossover kind of appeal and then they went for love of a lifetime which was pretty much more pop you know love ballad kind of thing but if they had released some heavier songs first which they did kind of release shake and tumble to metal radio mm-hmm. at first and they they got some great success off that and that enabled us to actually tour uh, about 40 cities by them putting that out but um i think if they put out home is where the heart is after that or overnight sensation one of the other songs ought to be a law some of those songs they would have had a, a long a longer they would have had a, they went for the fast nickel instead mm-hmm. of going for the slow dime and um, I, I kind of wish they had gone for the, the slow dime instead. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I'm not going to bitch about it. Of course. Yeah, Home is Where the Heart is. That's one that, that I was thinking. Because really, how awesome would that a video of that been? You could have had the live clips from being out on the road. You know, I can see it in my head. Well, thank you. One of the things I really like about that song is it's got a lot of vocals in it. Mm-hmm. And kind of makes it a little bit different. It's just the vocal arrangement. So, yeah, I would have loved for that one to have been a single. And actually, before we got our record deal, that was a big hit for us in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is where we were all living at, mm-hmm. at the time that we got signed. And it, the song went to number one on a rock station there in, in Charlotte. And um, maybe that's why the record company said, yeah, we better not release that one as a single because it's already been kind of burned in that market. So... Okay. They might have felt like they really needed that Charlotte market, and the song had already kind of done its its cycle. 
So I don't know. I, I I don't know what was in that board meeting when they all, you know, the record company guys met, but they decided to do what they did, and you know, it. I can't I can't bitch about it. Like I said. No, man, it went double platinum, right, in the U.S.? Yeah, in the U.S., yeah, man. So they knew what they were doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they did. I, I still go, hey, it could have sold 10 million if they had done it, done it the other way. But, but what do I know? <laughs> I, I know how to play a G chord and a C chord sometimes. So for this one, you guys, uh, at a certain point, you toured with Warren and Trickster. Uh, what was that tour like? It was the greatest thing uh, that, that I'd ever experienced. I mean, it was one of the highest-paying uh, grossing tours of the year. I think in Chicago there were uh, about fifty thousand people at, wow. at, at that venue. Um, it sold out everywhere. The arenas were twenty thousand seaters, and the sheds were twenty to, you know, like Chicago was uh, you know, more. And all the bands got along so well. I mean, uh, you know, all Warrant was so cool to us, and Trickster really cool, and. And we're still friends to this day. I mean, we still do a lot of shows with Warrant. Uh, the Trickster guys are kind of taking a break right now, but yeah, I talk to them a lot. Wonderful people. And uh, I, I can't, you know, it was the most amazing time because everything was happening so quickly. Our songs were all on MTV and, and all over the radio. For us, we were uh, finishing a show, uh, doing a meet and greet with the fans. Then we'd hop in the bus and drive at night, wake up real early in the morning to, to get to the radio station to do their morning show where we'd play a couple of songs acoustically, and then we'd go uh, meet with the record company local person, and then we'd go have lunch with another radio person, and then we'd go to a sound check, and then we'd go get some dinner and a shower, and then we'd go play the gig, and then we'd do our meet and greet, and then repeat the cycle. So there really wasn't much time for us to kind of sit back and go, wow, you know, we made it. Right. We, we, we had to work and we had to sound as good as we possibly could each night. And that's one of the things I think that kind of helped us a lot was to have the discipline to uh, make sure that we could, we could kick ass every night. Yeah. So like we said, this album went double platinum in the U.S. And now it's, it get, we get to the point where it's time to do the follow-up, Hold Your Fire. What was your your mindset going into this one? I mean, were you initially thinking like, hey, man, that one went double platinum. Let's do quadruple platinum. Was that the mindset? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Why not? Uh, uh, I think, um, you know, you know, I've been writing on the road the whole time uh, that we were on the road uh, with that tour. And uh, we had a meeting when we were in New York with Tommy Mottola, who was the head of Sony Music mm -hmm. at the time. And Tommy said, uh, hey, look, guys, you can't have the material for your second record ready soon enough. And we said, we got it ready. And he said, good. And about two weeks later, we got called back into the studio. You know, the tour ended, and, he, and, and they brought us back in to make that second record. So I'm glad we did our homework and um, had that material ready for that second record, because otherwise they would have pressed the record button, and we wouldn't have known what to record. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how quickly it, it worked. And uh, we went in with the same production team, David Prater, Doug Oberkirker, uh, up, in, up in Suffer, New York, at uh, Bear Track Studio. And, uh, and made our second record, Hold Your Fire. So I've talked to a lot of different people about this era, and, and I want to pick your brain because basically what's going on with you guys is, you know, like you said, you're riding high on, on the success, you're out on the road, you're writing tunes, but in the, the background somewhere there's this new musical 
movement that's coming through, which obviously is grunge. I mean, were you guys aware as you're recording the album, like this grunge thing is, is exploding at the same time as you're recording? Or were you were you aware of what was going on? Well, when we were recording our second record, that really hadn't exploded yet. Mm-hmm. There were little droppings of it that it, that it happened, but it didn't really happen yet. In fact, uh, we went out on the road. Um, we didn't even stay around to mix or to be there for the mixing of the second record. We went out with Tesla. Oh, nice. It was supposed to be a three-month tour, and it was their Psychotic Supper tour. So it was supposed to be uh, three months, so the summer. But the tour sold out everywhere it went so well that the promoters had the tour back two more times. So what was supposed to be a three-month tour was a nine-month tour. And uh, that was wonderful. They were a great band, great guys. They treated us so well. And um, after we got done with that tour, it was getting to be fall. A record company said, well, you, we really need to get you guys over uh, into Europe. And we've there's a band over there that wants to take you out on the road. They're called Status Quo. And I was like, yeah, I remember a song by them called mm-hmm. Pictures of Matchstick Men. Pictures of Matchstick Men. I remember that, but I was such a, I was a kid when that song came out. Well, you know, I, I did my homework and, and looked looked them up, and they had sold 111 million records, but wow. they hadn't toured America. So it's all these albums and huge hits they had over there. Started asking around. From what I heard, people said, "Hey, you know, it's it's a it's a great tour. It's going to be all." huge arenas, but the opening bands don't get treated very well by their audience because the audience wants to see status quo. So we went in, we went out on the road with status quo right before the Christmas of that year. It stopped right, right, you know, almost two days before Christmas Eve. And the audience liked us. Um, so we were really happy. The band liked us. The band had us, you know, in for dinner with them. The band was so, so successful. They were, they were like the stones that they had uh, their own chefs and everything, and they, they invited us in for dinner with them. So we finished that tour, and then it was time to figure out the third record. That's about the time when grunge hit. I remember being in a club in England on that tour with Status Quo on a night off and hearing Smells Like Teen Spirit mm-hmm. in a club for the first time. And I was like, wow, that is really good. That is a really cool-sounding record. And I didn't know it was going to be changing the face of the music business but it did yeah so that was the first time i noticed it was well into the cycle of the second album mm-hmm. yeah so making of the making the third record that's when we started seeing the writing on the wall that's kind of you know, sequence of events in my memory. Mm-hmm. But even so, uh, Hold Your Fire went gold, and uh, that was a pretty good, right, for the, in the U.S., am I correct, that went gold? Yeah, and it's, it's close to platinum. No, so yeah. It was a very successful sure. record for us. Yeah, for that, you know, for the time frame where a lot of the other bands were, were kind of falling apart, I mean, that that's pretty good, you know, success at that point. Yeah, we, we were lucky, for sure. What were some of your influences that uh, that you bring into the band? Before I started playing guitar, I um, was influenced by a lot of different kinds of music, funk, soul, and southern rock, uh, classic old, you know, Creedence Clearwater Revival, mm-hmm. Stevie Wonder, Rare Earth. And then uh saw Kiss on their Alive tour. I saw Ted Nugent, saw Aerosmith, and I decided this is what I want to do. <laughs> and uh, then Van Halen reinvented the electric guitar and um and that that was that was probably it for me but, but i've got so many guitar influences you know michael shanker steve morse 
Al Miola, Alan Holdsworth, Jeff Beck is probably one of my favorite. So I've kind of just got a ton of ton of guitar influences, but I've kind of been, you know, really attracted to songs mm-hmm. a little bit even more than than just lead guitar playing. Even though lead guitar playing is a big part of of what's motivated me to do this, but songs have been. A, a bigger thing for me. Well, yeah, obviously. I mean, uh, let's talk about kind of the songwriting dynamics because it's pretty much you and CJ that write the majority of the songs, right? Well, I, I think historically we did, but uh, there were a lot of times where we'd all get in a room and work on an idea. So it just varied from song to song and from, from idea to idea and then our rehearsal time. Uh, sometimes we had more, more chances to get together and jam and rehearse than others. But when you're on the, on the road plan and you're not getting any sleep because you're riding around in a bus at night and you're up to go to a uh, a radio uh, acoustic performance and, and like I said the grueling schedule we had there wasn't a lot of time for to get all four of us in the room so you had to kind of lay in your bunk going down the road and think of an idea for a song or in your hotel room you had to you know, I always took my guitar in there and I always took my drum machine and, and a little four track recorder try to come up with ideas and, and record the, the best riffs that I could come up with. So it was a combination of, I think, working as a team and then going away and working out individually some ideas and then coming back and presenting them. You kind of mentioned earlier how the pop elements, you know, kind of came into some of the songs. And, and I, I love pop and I love pop, you know, intermixed with rock. I think especially, well, actually, do you think the power ballad was like an essential component into the success of the band? I think that we're a very diverse band and that we all love something slow, something fast, and something half-assed. <laughs> so we we kind of love the variation of different tempos. We we wrote love ballads and we wrote hard rock stuff, so the, the variation of all that stuff is something that I think was necessary for our band to kind of satisfy each other or, or satisfy every the band as a group and artistically I think if we just did heavy metal the whole time we wouldn't have had that diversity that, that we all love mm-hmm. so that's I think the motivation behind it and the record company picked the singles we didn't really have a, a say in that so the fact like like I told you they, they kind of had to go for the throat mentality they went for that ballad because they knew that they could get some airplay on that Yeah, everybody was having success with ballads so we didn't really think in terms of we got to have a ballad. We just wrote a bunch of songs and picked the best one. Now, back in the mid-90s, about the time your third album came out, I remember I was working like in a sporting goods store, and uh, they would play, you know, like it was probably like a pop rock station, light rock station, and uh, I Live My Life For You was always played, and I always dug that tune, and, and honestly, it's pretty rare because a lot of your contemporaries at this point, because that was like 95, I think, right? 95, 96. They, they were pretty much, it was over. And here you guys are with a, with a hit in the mid-90s. I mean, that, that was pretty amazing. It, it was, uh, we got really lucky on that. The, the record company didn't want to put any money into the, the band anymore because right. the record company signed Pearl Jam. Right. And um, they, they were the big priority for that record company, Epic. Mm-hmm. And um, we finished that record and they said yeah we're not really going to promote this album we were so bummed out because you know that's we we put a lot of effort into that record and they released it uh without promoting it to top 40 radio 
And uh, lo and behold, it, that song was a top 40 hit. So we, we really got lucky on that. Uh, there's no, no explanation other than luck that I can think of. <laughs> now, um, are there any plans to ever do another Firehouse album? We would love to do it. We're, we all talk about it. Just a matter of, I think, getting everybody together to do it and getting that first song. We all mm-hmm. go, okay, okay that, that's a good song to start working on. Mm-hmm. So that's what we need. Yeah, yeah, because I know it's probably it's been a while, right, since you guys did a release. Yeah, yeah. Well, man, that would I think the fans would be very happy. Well, Bill, what do you want to say in closing to everybody out there? Thank you so much for helping us to have a career in this very challenging business for thirty years, especially at this very challenging time right now in twenty twenty. And uh, thanks for sticking with us. Please continue to. So stick with us, and we hope to see you on the road. Awesome. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, cool, buddy. Thank you so much, Mike. Have a great night, man. I appreciate your time. You too, Bill. Take care, man. Well, that's all she wrote with Bill. Great chat. Hey, you want to help the 80s Glad Model cast? Be a subscriber on YouTube, watch the ads, and share the interviews on social media. Rock on!